final episode in the first season of the Hollywood Renaissance limited podcast series with Rita Award winner and Wall Street Journal best-selling author Kennedy Ryan. For our final conversation, our special guests are the author of The Boyfriend Project and the upcoming release of The Dating Playbook, Farah Roshan, and our host, Estelle Halleck, who is an Associate Director of Marketing and Publicity at Forever Publishing. As always, make sure you stick around till the end because we have a very special excerpt from the Real audiobook. Real is a standalone contemporary love story celebrating all the hues of Hollywood, old and new. With that, let's get this conversation started. Hey everyone, I'm Estelle Halleck, today's host of episode four of Hollywood Renaissance limited series podcast. It's a dream come true to be here and I honestly can't believe it's happening. A little bit about me. Um, I'm the Associate Director of Marketing and Publicity at Forever, a publisher of romance, historical fiction, and lots of other good stuff. You can find me on our IG quite a bit. Most importantly, though, I'm a lifelong reader and trying to think about what little Estelle would say if I could tell her, when you grow up, your job is to be around books all the time. You talk to authors every single day, and then you got a really special opportunity like this one to talk to two of your favorite authors at the same time. I'm not freaking out. I'm totally fine. This episode is a little bit of, for, of a forever celebration. Uh, Kennedy Ryan is the author of the Bennett series, and Farah Rashan, our lovely guest, is the author of the Boyfriend Project series. Enough about me. Let's get this party started. I am so excited to welcome Kennedy Ryan, Rita Award-winning, Wall Street Journal and USA Today bestselling author of so many highly addicting books, including Real. I saw that Talia Hibbert called it a love letter to art, creativity, and to Black history, and I cannot intro it any better. Hello, Kennedy. Hi, Stell. How are Hi. you? I am so great. I'm so happy to be talking with you and all of about real because I guess every time your book comes out, or one of your books comes out, I always have to prepare myself to really slot in some time, know that I'm not going to get any sleep because... I, it really, I just can't stop reading your books. Um, and Real was definitely no different. I have like a lot of things going on and um, I stayed up pretty late reading it and then I couldn't stop thinking about it. So I gave up all my adult responsibilities. I crawled back into bed and I finished the book and I just, it is just such a masterpiece. Oh my gosh, Estelle. I mean, it's true. How, how do you do it? How did you do it? Estelle. I don't know. No, I'm just kidding. I guess I do. I don't, I don't. Thank you. Um, Real was, you said Talia called it a love letter to art and to black history um, and to something else. I can't remember what the other thing was, but creativity, if Talia Talia said it, it's true. Um, That's rule number one. Um, And I think you're right. That really sums it up because those were the three things that were kind of at the forefront was it started with me just being really proud, you know, looking around and seeing all of these amazing projects um, being helmed by black creatives. Um, And they were not just starring in them. They're they're the directors, they're the showrunners, they're the power, you know, behind these amazing projects that we've seen. um, And with our voices unfiltered through our lens, through our frame. And so it really just started with me having this amazing sense of pride um, and that I get to live in this moment when this is possible. 
you know, when the art that I am seeing emerge is possible um, and the agency that is fueling the art that we're seeing right now. And so, of course, I kind of thought, when else did we see this kind of collective uh, creativity and production and agency? And I hearken back to the Harlem Renaissance. And um, that's kind of how it started. And then it just, all these things came together that I, that I love. My, a lot of people think of sports romance when they think of me because of the Hoop series, which is how a lot of people kind of entered my world as far as writing is concerned. But I, my favorite thing to write is artists, you know, writers, singers, performers, poets, storytellers. Though That is my favorite thing to write because that is most resonant with who I am. And um, so, you know, writing the, the heroine Neva starts on Broadway and then ends up in Hollywood. And it's kind of that, you know, a star is born kind of thing. Totally. Where totally. It's like, you know, and then you've got the director and he plucks her from this relative obscurity and, you know, she's off to Hollywood. And then for me, I love, um, I love movies like, um, introducing Dorothy Dandridge, you know, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom that introduce these characters who should be a part of our you know, should be colloquial, culturally colloquial, um, but are for some reason, for so many people, more unknown than they should be. And so I thought, well, if he does Desi Blue's story, which she's a fictional composite of all of these, you know, like Ma Rainey and Bessie Smith and Billie Holiday and Adelaide Hall, if he did that, I get to do musical numbers, I get to do songs, you know, so I wrote some things for it. I pulled in some music like Body and Soul, which is a real standard from the jazz era. Um, and then, you know, I got to write these big kind of like dance numbers and it kind of takes on this cinematic feel, even as you're, I hope, as you're reading the book, because they're filming a movie in the book. It, and I mean, um, it totally does. And honestly, I'm never mad at you, but I was a little mad when I was done because I was like, I need a movie to watch when this is over. <laughs> but, but, you know, even as you're saying that, I, what I love about this book is that you're going to read this fictional account, but then you're going to want to research more. You're going to want to go find other movies to watch and other actresses and actors to read about. And I just think that that's like such a special moment. Yes, it was um, very special for me, even like the dedication of the book. And I don't know how you read it, but sometimes the book will just skip right over the dedication. But if you make sure you read the dedication, I think the audiobook doesn't have anything about the dedication, but the dedication is just a, a page full of names of Black creatives, Frankie Manning, and just all of these names, some you would know and some you wouldn't. And I'm hoping that when people read that dedication, their eyes snag kind of on these more unfamiliar names. And they're like, who's that? Who's that? Who's that? You know, and so... Um, and there's so much emphasis on the history and all of that, that sometimes it gets lost. There's a really big love story at the center of it, you know? So I hope, and it's a steamy love story, you know? Totally. I, that's what I go to you for. It's, it's true. Um, super steamy, but it's just like such a multi-layered experience. You know, you're getting the family dynamics, you're getting the friendship, you're getting the dance and even just like a character who is getting her big break, but is feeling so many different emotions that I know readers everywhere feel all the time, no matter what their uh, right. profession is. Right. Um, 
it's just, it's just so incredible. And I need, speaking of incredible, our brilliant guest, USA Today bestselling author, Farah Rashan. Farah is a lover of travel, football, Disney World, and theater. The dating playbook, her follow-up to last summer's The Boyfriend Project, is available on August 17th and just earned a starred Kirkus review. I'm not just saying this because I'm her publicist, but the dating playbook is even better than The Boyfriend Project, and I can't wait for everyone to read it. Hello, Hello and Kennedy. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Hi, Farah. Hello. Hi, Farah. You, you know, Estelle mentioned that she thought the dating playbook was better than the boyfriend project. And I truly thought she was just being nice because she's super, super nice. But I've heard enough people who've had early copies tell me the same thing that I'm now starting to believe that the book is actually good. So I feel better. Uh, look, <laughs> Kennedy's holding it up. Yay. I have mine right here. It's next up. I've been like in real promo world, but I have it right here. I can't wait to I'm dive into it. I'm excited about it. Yeah. I mean, I feel like we've been seeing so many positive things and I've been thinking about your characters all weekend and Kennedy's characters. And I, my dream is now that we have this like crossover situation happening um, with the ladies. I think like we, we need them all to go out for like happy hour. They have a lot to say to each other. It's the whole girlfriend thing. Yeah. That would be amazing. (laughs) But then we also have to go. So I don't know how we can make that happen, but yes, I mean, it's, it's not funny, I guess, but I, what I have loved so much about the romances that I've been reading lately and in particular with both of yours is that, you know, female friendship is just so important in them. I mean, that is the biggest part of my life. I'm sure you both feel this too. So it's just so great to have to have that in addition to romance yeah. in our books. Um, you know, for mine, I didn't, when I first thought about this story, that friendship didn't play a prominent role. At least it didn't play as prominent a role as it turned out to be in the story. But those girls kind of made themselves into the story, you know, because it wasn't until... I wrote the scene uh, in The Boyfriend Project when, um, for those who haven't read it, it's not really a spoiler, but all three of them meet after being conned by the same guy and um, they show up and someone's tweeting, well, one of them is tweeting about her date and then it goes viral. Um, And that was supposed to kind of be the end. Yeah, it it was, you know, that- Such a great It's because I'm on Twitter too much. Uh, (laughs) I got it from- with her. But um, it was originally going to be like my regular romances where, you know, you have friends and they maybe show up here and there. But it was the second scene that I wrote with them where they've spent the night talking and getting drunk on Moscow Mules. And that scene wrote itself. The chemistry between those three girls, it just popped off the page. And Uh, You know, in writing, I am an obsessive plotter and I usually, I will plot my entire book out. I remember stopping after that scene and having to go back to the drawing board because I thought this feels different. I can't just have these girls, you know, show up another two times in the book to just be the sidekicks. They needed to be a part of the story. And I think it just, it's that sisterhood, like you said, you know, it's just that power of that sisterhood they made themselves be a part of it. And I'm not looking back. I think it was the best move I could have made because it really didn't make the story. It's it's so nice because especially in, in that series, I feel like 
a reader is going to always have one girl that they most relate to. But I think actually I was most surprised when I read the dating playbook because I didn't think that I would relate to Taylor whatsoever. And in the end, I really, really did. Like she, uh, it's so funny. Like, again, to think of relations and the connections between your two stories, we have, you know, Neva who is starting out on Broadway, but she's an understudy and she just has, it's like the very beginning of her career. So she's feeling a ton of emotions. And then in the dating playbook, we have Taylor who is starting her own company from scratch after putting all of this money and effort into it. And things are just not panning out, especially when she sees like her two best friends who are always super supportive, but they're very successful and they're making a lot of money. And she's very like self-conscious about that. And I'm sure that Neva is feeling that exact same way when she's watching all of these women and other actors come up in musicals and plays. And she's just not, she's just not quite there yet. I really, I I really want to hear both of you talk about your leading ladies in both of those books and also what you admire most about them. Kennedy, do you Um, want to start? Sure. Uh, For Neva, Neva Saint, um, she is an understudy on Broadway uh, in a fictional play uh, that I created called Splendor. Um, and she has been in the wings. You know, she has been, uh, she's done a lot of like regional theater. So she's been on tour. She has, but this is her first time being on Broadway, even though she's an understudy. And so the principal actress goes on vacation and it's like her big, her big chance, you know? And so she, it just so happens that the week that she is stepping in for the principal actress, that's when our director, Cannon, who is looking to, has been looking for six months for the actress to cast in this, you know, epic biopic, sees her performing and knows this is my Desi Blue. And so she is, um, she's very open. You know, the way he describes her, it's one of my favorite, if you can have favorite lines of your own, and I don't often, but this one stands out. He describes her the first time he sees her performing on Broadway. He, he says, if she were a room, all the windows and doors would be flung open. And he talks about the open and how before she even says one line, her face delivers the lines, you know, that there's such a generosity to her as a, as a performer and that same generosity, like that openness, that spirit she carries into all of her relationships. You know, she is under incredible pressure because she's unknown and she walks into this huge, big budget project that basically is on her shoulders and everyone is skeptical. He's the only one who advocates for her. Everyone else wants like a big name and she kind of steps in as like this unknown, but she wins everyone over, you know, because she's massively talented, but she's also just so genuine, so humble. She's the star of the show and she's making Christmas cookies for the whole crew and cast. You know, she's that girl. And she's also managing a chronic illness, you know, and I really wanted people who, because sometimes we do really hard things under incredibly difficult circumstances. And those are people we root for. And I wanted readers to be rooting for her from the beginning because she's doing amazing things in sometimes difficult circumstances. And I admire her because she also, um, she is unabashed about the fact that she, really, really is drawn to this guy. You know, sometimes it's like, 
maybe I'm not. Okay. And she's like, I have a massive crush on my director. I don't know what to do about it, but I have this massive crush on him. And it's the same openness, you know, where she doesn't know. He says like, I can read you like, like your whole expression is an open book. He can, everyone can read her. And I think it just speaks to the generosity of who she is as a character. Um, and then she just presses through like adversity, you know, under adversity, she shines. And I love that about her. And she has some drama with her family where they end up estranged and she finds her family, you know, in this community of artists, she, it's a lot of found family. Um, and so she has a great, you know, you're talking about friendship, a great best friend who is her hairdresser. And, um, I really dug a lot into um, I interviewed a lot of people. That's kind of kind of one of my staples is interviews. But I interviewed a lot of I interviewed Broadway actresses and Hollywood actresses. And a lot of the black ones talked about how they would get on set and there would be no one who even knew how to do their hair. You know, like, and they'd have to end up figuring out how to do their own hair. And so the hairstylist as her best friend becomes this key figure because it also gives me kind of a chance to comment on something that's pretty big, you know, in Hollywood, which is knowing how to shoot people, you know, how to light people who um, people of color, knowing how to do the hair for people of color, knowing how to accommodate something that sometimes in mainstream contexts aren't accounted for. And um, that was a lot of fun. And, um, um, the one last thing I want to say is that I started looking at um, Broadway actresses like I think Brittany, I wrote it down, Brittany Johnson was one. There are like three Broadway actresses who um, pioneered and they were the first black actresses in those roles. I think one was in Frozen, one was in Wicked and one was in The Waitress. And um, just watching, reading about them, you know, crying as they were signing playbills with all of these, you know, young girls who had never seen someone who looked like them on stage. That was a really key part of Neva's experience, you know, that night she, and she talks about how the first time she saw Heather Headley on stage um, in Aida, how she was just like, she found, you know, her path, seeing someone who looked like her on stage. She describes it as it whispered to me, that could be you, you know, and it sets her trajectory. And the fact that she could be that for other young girls is really, really important to her. So. Oh, Okay. <laughs> it's so hard for me. I know it's There's just, just so it's so much. hard for me not to bring this entire conversation into uh Broadway and actually because I will not. You I will not save it for later. I will not wait. I mean, I think the follow-up is like, did you see yes. Aida Farah? I wanted to okay. Me too. I did saw you see it, it with Deborah Heather Cox. Heather Hitley was not in it, uh, but Deborah Cox was amazing. I she also was saw amazing. It with Deborah Cox. And yes. It's a great show. I was so glad you mentioned it because that soundtrack, or sorry, the yeah. cast album. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I can't believe I said cast that. Everyone is going to riot. Okay. Um, yeah, it's the cast recording. Um, no, you. you're you're saying that and you talked about Waitress. That's Nicolette Coe. That's um, Leslie Odom's wife. And I yep. wanted to see it with her. I will not sit here and talk about Broadway nonstop. No, I'm supposed to talk about Taylor right now. <laughs> Yes, yes. We'll come yes. back to Broadway. I'm going to we'll talk about Taylor right now. And, you know, it's funny that, Estelle, you mentioned that you you didn't think you would connect with her as much. Even as the writer, I thought the same. You know, of the three girls, Taylor is the youngest. She doesn't have her stuff together as much. Not saying that I do, but I kind of... <laughs> 
I, you know, I, I connected a lot more with Samaya in London, but during the course of writing this book, I really did come to know Taylor just because of her struggles that she went through. Um, just to give a little setup for people, Taylor, um, she is the youngest. She's the one who's trying to get her Instagram fitness business off the ground. And from book one, when they all go viral and the other two women, they hate the fact that they've gone viral, you know, because it's messing with their lives. For Taylor, it's a good thing because she thinks this is going to be the thing that gets her on the map. Well, of course, that does not happen. Their little 15 minutes of fame does nothing for her, uh, her business. But then in the dating playbook, um, she meets, uh, she's approached by a former football player who wants to uh, use her as his, um, his trainer because he wants to try to get back in the league. And once again, she thinks, you know, this is my big break. And he doesn't want anyone to know that they are working together. So once again, you know, her plans of going viral and, um, having people flock to her Instagrams are thwarted, but she still perseveres. And I think that was the thing when I was writing the book um, that I started to see myself in Taylor a bit, you know, because I thought about my own career and how many barriers, just like her, that I had to, you know, just jump over because yeah, I couldn't push them out of the way. Some of them, I just had to, it's like, okay, I've been pushing too much. I got to jump over this. And I just felt that way with her. She, she has a family that's full of these super smart uh, people. She had these two friends who, you know, very um, smart and successful in their careers. And people will learn, I don't want to give spoilers away, but people will learn that Taylor has a very good reason why things have just not fallen into place for her. Um, but even these issues that she had, it didn't stop her from believing in herself enough to go for her dreams. And she really did capture my heart, uh, you know, while writing this book, it was a very, this was my 2020 book. Uh, well, it should, it was like 2019 into 2020. Um, <laughs> there's, you know, I think all of us will have a 2020 book that we just think, you know, why did this book feel like the worst thing in the world? Oh yeah. Because I wrote it during 2020. You know, I went through so much with this book and I just thought that I would never like it just because of all of the extra, uh, life things that went on during the course of writing, but it truly has turned into a book that I know that I'm just going to adore because I was able to persevere and get that story out and thankfully have people like it. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. I would imagine it's hard to, and you touched on this a little bit, Farah, to write characters like both of these and, and not reflect on your own career paths or currently where you were before and you know something and maybe this is what happens when you get older you start like thinking about these very small little things that happened to you um or that you maybe just did at, at randomly like you know when you were in high school or when you were in middle school and you're like wait a minute all of that like led me back to this where I am right now so I thought about that a lot with with your both of the characters in these in these books and I'm wondering if there's anything that you kind of go back to and like that slowly little thing, like it all, like it all meant something. And I just wondered if either of you had one of those. Um, I, 
I, are you asking like pivotal moments kind of like, I think it's like the non pivotal. Cause I think we have okay. like the big break moments, right. Which I definitely want to get to. And then something small, like the one thing that I think of personally for myself is like, I was always passing around a book to people like during my math class and math was not my <laughs> forte at all. And I was always recommending books and people were always coming to me. Right. Such a small thing. I could probably forget that. And then I realized like years later, like this is kind of what I do for a living. I'm still that girl in my math class. So that's kind of the thing that I was thinking. Right. I, you know, I don't think that this is, I didn't think of this as pivotal at the time, but I wasn't, I didn't have plans to write fiction. You know, I was running a nonprofit that I had started for families who have children with autism. And um, I was raising my son, <laughs> you know, I was a special needs mom and it took everything, you know, like my whole life. I've said this before. My, it felt like my whole life was autism, you know, because I was running the foundation and my son's life and all the services and the insurance. It felt like his he was an industry, <laughs> you know, in himself. And I just remembered romance, you know, like I grew up reading romance. And then when I got to college, I didn't really ro read romance much anymore. And um, I was in my 30s and wasn't, you know, sub completely submerged in the world of running my nonprofit and raising my son. And I didn't really have anything that felt like it was just for me. And so I just picked up a romance novel <laughs> one day, like I need something that feels like an escape. And I remember what an avid reader I was and how did I stop? You know, like it was such a huge part. Now you have to re remember, I will, if you don't know, I'm a PK. So I'm a pastor's kid and I had to read romance in secret. <laughs> like, I hope my mom is still not listening because <laughs> she was like, you're not bringing them books in my house, you know? So I had to, I literally stuffed books in my mattress. I had them like in the back of my closet behind clothes. I had them under my bed. I had them tucked into my backpacks. Like I had to smuggle romance into my house. And so it was really, really special for me. And it got me through so much. And I remembered that feeling, you know, of escape and that I was at a really, really low point in my personal life. Um, my husband had lost his job. Um, literally the day after my son was diagnosed with autism, my husband lost his job and it set us on this really kind of dark chapter. And I was like, I need something, anything. And I just picked up a romance novel. I don't remember which one it was. And when I started reading it, I was like this, I feel like I can breathe. If only for 320 pages, you know, I feel like I can breathe. And then eventually I remembered, oh, I mean, because I've always been a writer, you know, my background is journalism. I started writing for newspapers when I was like 17 years old. Why couldn't I write? Maybe I could write a book, you know? And it just started with me picking up a romance novel after years, after a decade, because I needed an escape. And I didn't know that was going to be kind of like the gateway to another chapter in my life, you know, that it just changed the trajectory of everything. That's, that's interesting. It's, you kind of have that, I have that kind of same path with where I, I read them in high school. I got to college and it was all the serious books. They were basically the books that right. make you right. cry, like the Oprah books and those things that make you, you know, want to just go in a corner and think about life. Um, because I thought that's what I should be reading. But um, right. then I started, I found romance again when I was in uh, grad school, I think. 
And I decided I would start writing it. I'd had this group of friends that I met on the internet back when it was still strange to meet real people on the internet. Um, but we met through a, an author <laughs> and some of them were writers. And so I started writing with them. Um, but again, I didn't think that I would be an actual real writer. This was something I was doing to you know, play around with. Um, but once I started and I thought maybe I can do it, I hadn't told anyone. Um, and then my mom found one of my books. This was not a romance. This was the first book I wrote. This was my um, thriller, legal thriller, this girl who knows nothing about the law. But I wanted to knock John Grisham off his pedestal. So I wrote this book that had like 17 <laughs> points of view. And it was, it is the worst book ever. But, but look at right? how ambitious you were. You're right? like, I'm going to do it. Yes, I I'm love it. I write in. My I mom found it. And I didn't think that would be a huge thing for me. But that was because it was like, okay, the secret's out now. Maybe I actually can do this. So it was my mom uh, looking for something in my room because I was taking too long to go and find it for her. That was that thing that really started this off. And, you know, I look back and there was another one that I thought would not be, I didn't realize it was as pivotal, but that one is probably even more. It was a layoff. I was working for Shell Oil Company mm. um, using my degrees, like my dad would say, in a real job. Um, but I was a, a human system specialist uh, for Shell, and they had layoffs. And I'd been writing, and I, I was a member of RWA at that time, and I just thought, you know, maybe one day. But I also had this career that I was on that path, um, and I hadn't touched my book in like 10 months. And then I got laid off and I took a couple of days to wallow, but then I went back to my book. And just a few months later, I uh, found out that Dorchester Publishing was starting a new line where they were trying to bring African-American romances in. And I always, when I look back, I think if I had not lost that job, I would not have been able to write because they needed, they wanted books. And I had a book for them. Because after I was laid off, I was able to write. I just put everything into finishing that book that I hadn't start, you know, I hadn't touched in 10 months. And I, when I look back, I think, thank God I lost that job. Because if I didn't, I would still be working at Shell Oil and I would be miserable. <laughs> mm. I, it, it, it's, <laughs> it's those things that you, when you look back and you see those little, you know, things that you had no idea would turn out to be pivotal moments in your life. Uh, you're just grateful for them. But yeah, those are the big two for me, for sure. That's I'm just like taking all of this in. And I, I think everyone who's listening is probably feeling the same. I, it just like there are surprises around every corner. And I feel like both of you are very positive influences, like in this community and in, I don't know, everywhere. And I just love that so much. I think, you know, there are so many things that I think it's okay to feel down and to feel like a little defeated. But even with your characters and your books, it's like they feel those things and then they keep on going. Right. And it's just so admirable. I agree. So then the big breaks thing, I can keep thinking about that. It's like, you know, Neva is spotted by Canon when she's like 
it's like one night something special happens and then you know Jamar hires Taylor to train him like these are big moments that happen and I feel like both of you are too are going to be like too modest about this to say like what you feel like your big break is but I I wonder if it if there is one moment or just like you know there's a season and then there another yeah. one happens again you know so I guess I'm thinking about both of those things for for both for your careers Kennedy, you want to take that first? It's like, okay, yours. You you have to. Okay, um, I think for me, it's so funny because when I when you say that, like, what's the big break? And people will say, you know, when did you feel like you broke out? And I honestly want to say, have I? I'm like, I'm serious. I knew it. I'm a mind reader. I'm I'm always like, has it happened? Will you let me know? Um, Because I don't, I don't know. I I just don't ever feel like, whoa, you know, and I think there's something in me inherently that always like this drive where there's so much that I want and there's so much that I see. And I feel like there's, we're only scratching the surface of it. So I don't like to think of, oh, you broke out or, oh, you arrived or, oh, you whatever. So I, I really resist that, but I know what you mean. (laughs) So I think for me, a real pivotal moment was, um, when I wrote, and this is a lesser known series. Um, I wrote the grip series and because it dealt with, um, police brutality And it dealt with a lot of really tough issues that people weren't really writing much about in romance. And I had written the whole thing and then I decided I wasn't going to publish it (laughs) because it just felt like all these risks. And then my friends forced me to publish it. And I felt like that with that series, I found my place and I found my voice. And then I did Longshot, which I think is pivotal, obviously, um, For me, it won the Rita, which was a big deal. But for me, what was the bigger deal was I felt like this is what I'm supposed to be doing, you know, and it really put something inside of me that says you want to write for impact. Like that's what I want to do. And I always talk about Becca Symes course, which is write better, faster and strengths for writers. And she was the first person to really articulate it for me when she said, okay, when you look at your top strengths, belief is like one of your top strengths. And it's very rare for writers to have belief in their top three. This is why you write the things that you write. Like for me, that was so huge to understand it was okay to be the way I am and to write when I'm writing. Do you know what I mean? Because sometimes it's hard for me. I hear people often say, Kennedy doesn't write romance. She writes women's fiction. And I don't know why she, you know, it's not, I sometimes struggle to feel like, where's my place in this? You know, sometimes I feel like what I'm writing, it doesn't fit sometimes um, in the broader landscape. And I'm always like, I gotta find my place a little bit. And I felt like right around then, I did start to feel like Mm -hmm. I found my place and my lane and like, it doesn't matter if no one else does it or sees it, but this is who I'm supposed to be as a writer. And it's so funny because we talk about big breaks and obviously, you know, when I won the Rita, that was a big deal and things kind of for the RWA kind of (laughs) fell apart, (laughs) you know, after that. But and I'm going to try not to get emotional because every time I talk about this, I cry and that's bad. I, I try, I try not to do this. But that I have to deal with the Rita and all of that. I have to compartmentalize it. 
like what that night was and how I felt that night. And then everything that happened after and what that night meant for me personally. And I bring it up now because yes. Farrah was there and I, I know, will, and I'm going to cry too. Because <laughs> I will, I will never forget. Um, I, first of all, I didn't think I was going to yeah. win. You know, I, was, I didn't have a speech. I didn't have anything. Literally, I got on stage and had nothing to say. <laughs> I just started going off the top. And the notes that I had written got deleted somehow. But I will never forget Farah was standing right there when I went on stage. And she had I just I had to hug her before out. she got on stage. It was... I, I will never forget. It was amazing like it was just such a sense of like it just I don't know I will never forget Farah standing right there with her arms stretched out before I went on stage and it was just such I don't know there was so much acceptance and love and I just felt like in that moment all it of was, it was wrapped it up in felt, you Farrah <laughs> no I mean this was your award but it truly felt like Kennedy won this for so many black authors who could have been on that stage and should have been on that stage years ago. There was so much in that moment. I truly, I could not see her face because the tears had already started and I cried throughout her entire, (laughs) I just cried. And I don't even remember who was next to me, but they had to like hold me because it was just, it was just something about this moment, you know, and being a member of RWA for 18 years and seeing the struggle that so many black women had gone through, um, right, right. It was it was just one of those moments. It is forever etched into my head, not as much in my eyes because, like I said, it all just blurred through tears. But it really was um, so special, and it is unfortunate, of course, what happened to RWA after. But that moment will forever live. And it just, that is, it was right. just, it was, yes. Yeah. I can, I get chills when I think and about I, it too. And I think this is the first time yes. you and I <laughs> talked about it. Fair, like this is the first time we've ever yeah. talked about it, but I just will, that moment for me will always be you. And there were other people, like there were other authors who were there, but I don't see their faces. Like I, there was like a line of them, you know, it was amazing. I just, I, I but you were just standing there with your arm wide open and that moment for me will always be it will always start with that you know with before I even got to the stage getting to hug you and just feeling that love and that acceptance it was so amazing and um it's exactly what you said is the thing that I keep in mind with that moment with that award with all of it is that there I'm there of course you want to think your book is special of course but that should have happened for so many people. You know what I mean? Like, I don't ever want to think there's something special about me where I was finally, we have someone who should have won that award. No, like, I don't think of it that way at all is I think of all the people who should have, you know, before I did. We're going to clear it up. <laughs> um, she based was, on she talent. Special based and she on- absolutely deserved that award. It's finally, they got it right. That's she, what it is. <laughs> yes. Exactly. No. Yes, exactly. I mean that, you know, I shouldn't have been the first is really what I mean, you know? And so I think that just having this moment with you, Farah, it's the first yeah. time I've gotten to really thank you 
for being there that way for me and for holding your arms out and hugging me so tight and celebrating that moment. Really like, I mean, I felt like there were people who were celebrating that moment like it was their own. And that's how I thought about it. You know, that's really how I thought about it. It was special. So, it will forever, I, forever never, be special. I've never gotten the chance to say thank you for that. Thank Vera. you for, so thank for you letting you me. So um, not that I gave you a choice. I, I pretty much grabbed her. <laughs> it was amazing. Thank you. You were, you were, yeah. you were amazing. And it's so funny, Farrah, because the first time I remember hearing about you, I was in the Georgia chapter mm-hmm. of the RWA, which was a very, um, there were a lot of black authors who were self-publishing there. That was a powerful group of women. Yeah. Nessa Riley was there. Piper Hugo was there. Like Sericia Glass. Like they're all of these. It was like this amazing like think tank. And I remember your name being one of the names that kind of rose to the top. And um, I'd never gotten to actually meet you in no. person, I don't think, until yeah. That year. So, but I'd always admired you just from hearing your name and seeing what you were doing. Um, even from hearing other people talk about you in the chapter, because I was completely green. I knew nothing. I mean, about anything. And I can't even remember where we were supposed to be question wise. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm so sorry. I mean, you're the big The big break. Gosh. Yeah. <laughs> huh. Um, you know, mine are like. I, I see it as like these steps when I look back, these steps that took me a little further in my career. And they're like my first one, of course, just, you know, finally getting uh, publishing. Um, but I remember when I got on with Harlequin, this was back when Harlequin had their set of authors and they did not bring a lot of people in the Kamani line. Uh, the year that I uh, first got, first published with them, it was myself and Kimberly K. Terry. We were the only two authors that they brought on that year Um, because it was really right before self-publishing took off and Black women showed them there is a market for this and you can bring more of us under the umbrella. Um, But that's where I got my audience. You know, I really got an audience with Harlequin. Um, And then when I decided to indie publish, um, I was one of those people who got back when BookBub was like this really, you know, it was new. And if you got yourself a BookBub ad, that was it. I was lucky enough um, to have that experience with uh, my very first book that I republished, you know, myself. And I just remember I had like a half million downloads, the free downloads of that book. And that was it's again, one of those steps because it introduced my work to so many more people. Um, and BookBub, I don't know if it still has that impact that it had back then in 2012 or 2013 when that happened for me. But if I go on that ladder, that definitely was like a rung that stands out for me. Um, and I have to say, you know, I'm living this season that I'm living in now it's the biggest. I, you know, before I sold the boyfriend project to forever, I was still self-publishing. I, I left Harlequin and I started doing it on my own for like three years. But when I came up with the idea for this story, I just thought this is bigger than what you can do with it yourself. Let's try to sell it. And, you know, I had a couple of publishers going for it and I'm, I'm just, grateful that I've chose forever because they got behind the book. 
Um, and then the book of the month pick, I think had such a huge impact. And this is by far, you know, I, I think of it and I just finished my 40th book last night at like 11 o'clock. Um, <laughs> I know that's why I'm kind of still tired, but I look back on it and I think <laughs> this moment is by far the biggest that I I've been in. Um, I, it, it's just, it's amazing, but talk about big breaks. Yeah. It may take 36, 37 books to really like get there, but this, this feels so different from anything I have felt career wise in the past. So I think big break, the boyfriend project, I think is, you know, I think it was yes. book number 37 for me, but number 37 was truly my big break because it just took me in a stratosphere that I have never even, yeah, it's awesome. And it's so amazing to see you in all those spaces and to see all the readers you're reaching and just to see you soaring this way. It's amazing. It has been it's quite a year. Gratifying. It truly has been a year. And yeah, I, I'm beyond grateful. And Estelle, she's sitting there. It's like, she totally deserves so much of it. She has just, yeah, she's just amazing. You wrote the book. You wrote the book. You do. I mean, it's thinking about what you both do to write a complete story, right? And then having to do the promo on top of it. It is just absolutely remarkable. And me just doing one side of it, I just don't know how you can, you manage to balance all of those things. Um, it's, it's really tough. And I think, um, I mean, I hope more and more readers understand just like how multidimensional and multi-layered what you do is. Um, and I know we're all very thankful for all of what you do because, I mean, you just give us all so much joy and <laughs> yay. So this is when we were talking about the beginning of this podcast and like what we might talk about. And we brought up Broadway, which is, you know, Sarah's big thing and a big thing of mine. And I was just wondering, um, and I'm just like a pop culture, like film fan. And Kennedy, I'm assuming that you are too from this submersive work that you've just created. So I'm wondering if either of you ever performed before, or is it something that you just like leave to the professionals? Um, I sing. So um, I've, you know, done that in the past, um, singing, which is something I used to think I would do that. Like professionally, I thought this is what I'm going to do for a living. That lasted about four seconds. <laughs> you know, I was in a group. I'm not going to talk about that girl group. I'm not going to talk about that girl group. Is this oh, wow. breaking news? No, this is, this is news that I hope we will all forget. Oh no. Um, I, I was, gonna think I was about in a girl it. group. I was in a girl group, a couple. Okay. Um, and so I, I, I love, I actually love being on stage. Like, you know, um, when people, I love public speaking, like when people talk about, you know, that's their biggest fear, give me a good, you know, 5,000 people to talk to. And I am right at home. But if you give, I'm much more comfortable in those kind of larger settings than I am with like eight people. So I, I really I have performed before, not Broadway, not anything like that, but I love singing, you know, and um, I used to think that's what I would do for a living, but 
thank God it, it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> because I would have I crashed and burned fast. This is the, oh the right gosh. path. Okay, so we cannot be more opposite on this one. Not even close. <laughs> I love Broadway. I could never, I cannot hold a tune. Um, but when it comes to just being on stage, I was always the director in my high school place. <laughs> Mm, yes. I was the director. The shot. Um, I actually, <laughs> when I was in college, I almost gave up my scholarship. I went to, to uh, Xavier University on a full scholarship, and I almost gave that sucker up because they told me I had to take a speech class. And the first time I tried to give a speech in front of class, I passed out, and they had to like revive me with water. <laughs> And that is, I was actually, I, uh, at Xavier, they, they sent me to, um, a therapist. I had to go to therapy for three months to get over my social phobia that no, that's how bad I am. The fact that I could stand and give like workshops and things like that. Now my old speech teacher from high school, she's like, Farah, what I gave a, I gave a three minute (laughs) speech and I did not take a single breath. That's where I passed out because I did not take a single breath. I said the whole speech in one because I just wanted to get it over and done. And I realized that, oh, wait, you have to breathe when you speak. So that was the first <laughs> lesson. But that's just how bad my anxiety over speaking in public was. I went two, three times a week for three months with a therapist to help me get wow. to the point where I could give a five minute speech in class and get that requirement under and still continue. Cause I told my mom and dad, I was like, I'll just give up college. If they want me to take this class, <laughs> I was the only sophomore in a, a freshman <laughs> speech class because I went through my first year and I was like, I'm just not going to take it. <laughs> yeah. Avoiding it. Right. So I am right. always so jealous right. of people who can get up on the stage and speak. I I'm, more comfortable with it now, but it is still on my list of things to do. It is like on, you know, the last page on the very back of the page, you cannot get further. Right. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it has always been total, total, total fear for me. But, but I think, I mean, when you ask like most people what their like number one fear is, most people say, Public More speaking. than death. More like, than and I, I that resonates so much with me. I'm like, bring on the sweet debt. I would take that over <laughs> speaking <laughs> in public. But again, um, and I didn't think, you know, as a writer, you think you're gonna just sit there and write books. You know, it's the great job for an introvert. Right. And then it's like, hey, can you speak on this? And you know, it's like in front of people. That's not. People. I only deal with you know, fake people that I make up. You want me to speak in front of real people? That's not what this job was supposed to be about, but it's gotten better. It's it's almost like with social media, I think that even my job, which normally would be very much in the background, becomes very much more public than I ever thought I would do. I mean, I cannot sing, I cannot act, even though I was in a movie once, like a movie in college that it's a long story. (laughs) We won't talk about it. But like, I sometimes I think about like the Instagram stuff that we do and just even just doing this. I mean, never in my like wildest dreams did I think that this would be a part. So I do think like social media has really made that like a part of um, all of these strange things that we thought we could just, you know, hide and and not really speak to anyone. I want to talk a little bit about um, 
research because I feel like both of you have something in common for what's coming up next for Farah, which is my dream come true for her. So why don't we talk a little bit about Farah's upcoming mm. project? Yeah. Yes. Um, this one, is, yes. it's not forever. Uh, it's with my other obsession, Disney. But I am so lucky that I get to write uh, a story about Tiana, Princess Tiana from The Princess and the Frog for their um, very successful Twisted Tale series. And it's a young adult, but it's it's really aged up. Um stories and they all take a twist on the classic Disney tales. So I can't say what my Tiana twist is. I can say that I'm absolutely loving it. And yes, the research for it. Um, I know so much more now about 1920s New Orleans, which goes with Kennedy's story because it's the jazz era, right. you know, and learning about so mm-hmm. many of these people and how many of them got their start in, you know, in Treme. That's where I guess I can say that that's, you know, Tiana is in Treme because that's where the black people in New Orleans at that time, that was like the heart of the community for them. Um, and yes, I'm absolutely, I'm loving it. Now that I'm finished this other book, I get to go back to Tiana, uh, but just the series itself, you know, it's things like what if Ursula had won on with the prince, um, with the little mermaid, what if Ursula had won and taken over the sea and what if, um, Anna and Elsa had never known each other as kids with Frozen. You know, it's just these these great twists on these tales and you just get to take the story from there. And I really am loving it because I'm such a huge Disney person. Uh, you know, my niece has been, she, she lives as a princess. Uh, she works as Princess Tiana um, at Disney. So it's just, and just being from New Orleans. Yeah, she does. Oh, Oh my gosh, that's so cool. Oh my God. The first time that I found this out about Farah, I like (laughs) cried at a restaurant the first day we met. It felt like it was fate that we were meant to be paired together. And then I also (laughs) dropped a plate and broke it in the restaurant because I got too excited. And now it's forever living on this podcast. But yes, yes. That is so cool. It really does feel like um, fate when it comes to this story because I had, I think about it, um, I had no, I wasn't going to write YA. Just, I I wasn't. Um, But this kind of fell into my lap. And when I showed the people at Disney, you know, again, being from New Orleans, I showed them pictures of my niece when she got to meet with uh, Leah Chase, who Tiana is based on. You know, she has a picture of her in Leah Chase's kitchen at Dookie Chase Restaurant uh, because she and a bunch of the Tianas from Disney got to meet her. And uh, it's just it's really special that I get to do this. Um, and it's just so much fun. I wish I could say more about the book. I can't wait until we can at least give the twist on it. Uh, but yeah, the research that came, you know, that I had to do, I found myself getting lost in it. The people who write historicals, I don't know how they ever get anything written. Because this is really the first right. time I've had to do that kind of work. This is my first kind of like, you know, historical because the entire book is set in 1927, New Orleans. And you go for one little thing and hours later you're digging into this stuff and being from the city. It's like, you want to know this about your town. So it has been, it's been so much fun. Truly, truly. 
That is I, what you're saying really resonates in the sense that when I was um, researching for real, of course, it's Harlem Renaissance era. So it's the 20s. It's also the 30s. It goes into 40s. Like it kind of just goes throughout. And it's a contemporary romance, but there's a historical theme vein that runs through it. And I wrote a movie. I kind of I wrote a movie, you know, like the script. I used the script to convey those historic, the historical storyline. I had to learn to write screenplay for it, which was interesting. Um, But you're right. It's like I, I would start, I, the way I talk about my creative process is like, it doesn't start. I don't start writing until about 60% into it. It's like the first 60% of the whole creative Mm -hmm. process is interview and is research. And um, I actually was looking at several jazz artists from New Orleans, like mm-hmm. Jelly Roll Morton, like Louis Armstrong, like Sidney Bechet, and so many of them. One who really stands out, Sidney Bechet, just because he was living in a country that saw his skin color before his gift, yeah. you know, he ended up, he was working as a tailor here in America. And this is one of the greatest horn players in history, working as a tailor here in America because he couldn't make a living. And then he goes over to Paris, as so many of them did. You know, James Baldwin, like so many Black artists fled the country, went to Paris, went to London, um, went to Europe. And when he went over there, he was a superstar. You know, he's from New Orleans. He was a superstar. They named festivals after him. I mean, he, you know, he's just such a celebrated artist there. So many of them are, obviously, Louis Armstrong. All of these festivals sprang up. Um, but I had like a map of Harlem from the 20s and the 30s. And I'm like tracing Lenox Avenue. And I have, yes. you know, I'm looking at all of the, I had literally have the script of the Cotton Club is right here the on movie? my desk right now. Uh, awesome. I ordered the script. I literally ordered the script from the Cotton Club because I had to learn to write screenplays. And it was just really submerging yeah. yourself. And you're right. I had to like pull myself out of the research because it just feels like, why didn't I know these things? Or, and it starts to really shape the story you're writing. And I, I, I've started calling myself instead of a plotter or um, a uh, cancer. Yes. I started calling myself a finder, which Talia gave me <laughs> because I don't, I, it's like, I don't plot the story. I know a little bit, but it's not until I've done the interviews and I've done the research that I really find I love that. the story. And then I'm like, I'm like, okay. She, and I do, I always do her accent when I say it. She's like, oh, you're a finder. So <laughs> she goes, oh, you're a finder. That's what you're, you're a finder. And so um, I love doing her accent, even though they say I don't do a good job, but they're wrong. <laughs> I, think it was I thought it was pretty good. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. I'm just saying anyone listening, that's my British accent. And um, <laughs> I, I just have started thinking about the research aspect is where I kind mm-hmm. of find the story. And um, with this particular one, and I you know you can identify with this fair, you just get lost in yes. the, the world. You get lost in the real world. And I had to really pull myself out. Like, okay, you are going to miss yes. your deadline. Like, you've got to stop researching. You've got to stop interviewing. And you need to start actually writing. And so, um, yeah. but it's been amazing. It's really been amazing. And it was my first time writing anything. It's contemporary, but writing anything that history had that in much it. Yeah. history it's, in it. So, it yeah. So Piper always teases me. How's that historical coming along? I'm like, it's not <laughs> historical. <laughs> but it, it is a fascinating time. You know, it's to see what they were up against because this is the Jim Crow yes. South for me that, you know, when right. I was going, uh, 
as I'm researching, but just to see how much they were still able to accomplish with all those barriers. It's, it has been so fascinating. And I keep telling myself that I'm not writing historicals. Um, but <laughs> I also tell myself never say never, even if I write a story for me, just as I, because I found so many fascinating people, um, you know, these people who really right. did so much of new Orleans culture are these people who, like right. you said, you don't even hear their names, but so many of the things that we enjoy today is because right. they are the ones who invented that and put it there. So absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the roots of yes. all of it. I mean, right yes. there, you yes. know what I mean? And it's so interesting because when I was doing some of my research, um, I would come across there were, I can't remember their names right now, which is probably good, but there were some white artists who tried to say we started jazz. And I was like, how would, how could you say you started jazz? Like, obviously you didn't start jazz. Um, but I think it's like, when you're talking about what they were up against, I've said this in several interviews. It's like, we as a nation, the world <laughs> owes such a, a debt, like an incalculable creative debt to these artists because jazz, blues, hip hop, R&B, rock and roll, like all of that came out of yeah. these people. And um, just to have to see as I was doing the research to see how they weren't celebrated, how yeah. they weren't paid, you know, how they weren't, you know, they weren't acknowledged. Um, and that was heartbreaking, but then also it's so encouraging to see these people soared like they, they were, and it's so funny because we talk about Broadway. One of my favorite stories, I tell it every time people are probably sick of hearing about it, but I want to say his name all the time, Frankie Manning, who was a dancer and he actually, we talk, I talk about him in real, who was a choreo- choreographer and a dancer like Fred Astaire, but Fred Astaire went on to be so famous and Frankie Manning worked in a post office for 40 years. Nothing wrong with working in a post office, but we're talking about Broadway in his seventies. He, wow. You know, it's like, and no one knew who he was really until then. And so I know you love Broadway. So he didn't win his Tony award until he was in his seventies. And I just coming across lives like that is just is so rewarding, and um, to, and then to integrate yeah. it into fiction so that people find them, so that people, other people, your readers can celebrate them. Um, it's it's one of my favorite yeah, parts it's of important. this experience. Is people saying, "I didn't know that was a person. I didn't know he did that. She did that." Yeah, it's an important thing that you you're doing with this. You're at least giving them their due. That's what right, you're doing. right. Yeah. That's all we can. That's all we can, you know, do at this point, but we, we have yes. to do it loudly <laughs> you know, and proudly, you know? I love both of you so much. <laughs> and I just, I just feel like we could talk for hours about so many important things and so many fun things. And I just like, I just need to say how special this is to be here and listening to you and I hope that everyone listening also feels the same way. I mean, I know they do. What am I saying? I know. Um, but anyway, I just wanted to say that I love Thank both of you. Um, Very much love so. you back, Estelle. Thank you. <laughs> I have no idea how to end this because I just truly think we could go on forever. But I, I think one thing I, I was thinking about with, you know, the theater community this year or the past year and a half and Broadway being closed down and a lot of 
people not having jobs and just how that community came together. And then thinking about Romance Landia is his own little community just like that. And one something that stands out to me about both of you is just you're constantly, constantly championing other writers all the time. And I mean, that is something that I just, I love to see so much for a million reasons. Um, and I just wanted to, I think maybe ending on the joy of Romance Landia and what that has maybe meant to you, if there's something specific you wanted to share, um, I feel like that would be a nice little, a nice little ending. Cause we really are like yeah. a little theater community. I agree. You go first. You go first here. Cause I just, been um, you know, for me, I, I talked about how this is, you know, for introverts, how it's a very isolated place, but you also need that community because you need someone who knows what you're going through for so many uh, writers like me and my, you know, friends that I have, your family doesn't want to hear it. You have to find those people. And when it comes to supporting other writers, just the practical side is that we can only write so many books a year and readers can read them in a day. So why wouldn't you, you know, support your fellow authors because we can never write as fast as they can read them. There is enough right. to go around for everyone. So I think it's one of those things where it makes no sense to me not to support fellow authors because we're all in this for one thing and that's to entertain readers. And especially in this day and age when, you know, if I were to say I'm competing against someone, I'm competing against like Netflix and Candy Crush and all of these other forms, you know, that take <laughs> right. readers away from books. I am more than happy to support my fellow authors because as long as we are giving readers these stories that keeps them going back to their bookshelves, that's, that helps us all. So I, I can't understand not supporting fellow read, uh, writers. That's just how I view it. I want, I want everybody to succeed because I got two books in me a year, maybe. <laughs> so, that's it. so I need you to provide, you that's know, and I, so many times I have had readers, um, you know, I would publish when I would self-publish my books and I would have them set to self-publish at midnight and I would wake up and at 7 a.m. I've got emails saying, this book was great. When is the next one? I'm like, can I please get What's this copy? That? What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> what? You know, people have read the entire book before I could get up that morning. Right. So yes, it's like, go read these other great books so that I can have a breather <laughs> and you're not, you know, binge watching. I don't want you binge watching something on Netflix where you forget about books because that happens. I want, I want them to continue right. reading my fellow authors. So yeah, it's a no brainer to me. Right. I feel the same way. And I feel like um, I mean, the only, I feel like I'm in a three-way competition with who I was yesterday, who I am today, who I am tomorrow. Like that's the three-way race that I'm in, you know, and I don't ever feel like I'm competing against anybody else. And I think that it, it fosters sense, uh, such a sense of community when we support each other. And the thing that I love is now, and I've said this a few times, I don't know where I've said it, but I'm sure I've said it a few times. I love 
seeing romance authors now celebrated broader, even beyond our genre now, like finally, you know, it's like our books, which the romance genre has been so denigrated for so long, you know, by people, by outsiders, people who are inside, we understand like, this is the jam. (laughs) Like it's right here because we have these amazing layered stories. We have, you know, trial, we have dark moments, and then we have joy. Like you are guaranteed joy. You are guaranteed that, you know, a woman is going to be at the center of this story, that her pleasure is going to be centered, that her agency is going to be centered. Like what more do you want? We are the only genre that rolls all of that into one guaranteed experience. And then some of the most talented writers, bar none, are in this genre. And so for me, it's just crazy that some of the most talented writers I've ever met are my friends. <laughs> you know, so I'm just like, are you kidding? You know, like I you know, I have to pinch myself. Like, um, like Sarah McLean will text me, like, are you gonna sprint? And I'm like, how is this <laughs> happening? Do you know what I mean? Like, how how am I getting a text message from someone? Yes. You know what I mean? I'm just like, these people are so incredibly talented. How are they my friends? And so it's so amazing to get to shout for them. And then people you don't even know, but you recognize they're so talented. And it's like you said, the the romance reader is a yes. voracious yes. animal, <laughs> you know? And so you can never write enough. I'm down to like a book and a half, maybe two books a year, you know? And so I know I can't satisfy you and I don't want you to just read my books yes. over and over and over again. So I constantly am looking for people to celebrate and people to shout about. And we're just, I mean, that's just being a good person too. You know, it's just like, let's make, There are so many spaces that are toxic. You know, there are so many spaces where you feel like all the joy is choked out of everything that if this is one place where we can we can find joy and we can celebrate each other, let's do it. You know, let's make this a great place. I just look at all the things that have happened with romance this year. The romance runoff, you know, that that happened where it's like, oh, my gosh, look at what we can do. And for me, Lyft, you know, we raised almost $100,000 this year for autism. I mean, every time romance readers and the romance community says we're behind this, amazing things happen. And I just think it's a privilege to be a part of this community, you know? So... <laughs> I mean, yes, I it's it's funny because and maybe this is a weird thing to say, a lot of people, you know, ask about the authors you have and I since being at Forever can just say everyone is just all romance authors are so kind and so hardworking and support each other and it's so true and and I'm not lying when I say that. Like I just I'm a horrible liar anyway, <laughs> but you know, it's it's just really really the truth and just celebrating all of these, like everyone's amazing uh, work, but then also really thinking about what that means to the world is just so exciting. Um, And I wish more people, can I curse on this, would stop saying shit about romance and just hear what you (laughs) both have to say. Sorry. Right. Right. Um, And I, and I feel like that's happening. Like I, fortunately, I feel like more and more our genre is exporting to people who maybe never thought they would read romance. And they're like, Wow, this is yes. the shit. Yeah. <laughs> since, since you popped the cork on the profanity, <laughs> yes. Well, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, first, I have yes, to we've been cursing the whole I time. I know. We didn't curse at all. And that's, um, 
That's good. No. I'm sorry, everybody. That is perfectly um, fine. No, that's totally right. Sometimes I say that being a part of this, even though I'm like on the outskirts, a part of the genre really is defending the genre quite a bit. I hate that that's the truth, but I would rather do that and die on that hill than many other hills. So, um, and I know that you both feel the same way. And I'm sure a lot of people who are listening feel like that too. Um, Speaking of celebrating, on August 17th, we're going to be celebrating the release of the Dating Playbook, which is very exciting. Sarah, did you have anything you wanted to add about this book that we that we haven't said? Oh uh, no, can I plug something? Can I plug my uh I would love I for have you. this we have this special campaign because you know we I love indie bookstores and we're actually doing this campaign with several indie bookstores both in New Orleans and several around the country. But um, you know, go to my website, go to Forever's website, go on my Twitter, I have it. But we have these cute stickers that you get, the sticker sheet. I was so, Estelle could tell you I was obsessed with them. Um, so, but you get, you can get, you know, a copy of the book, either with a book plate, if you buy it at one of the stores that's around the country, or I will sign the actual book and personalize it if you buy it from one of the New Orleans stores with like the sticker sheet and bookmarks and things like that. But the most important thing is that it helps out indie bookstores who really need the help, you know, after the year that we've been through. So if you go there, you have until August 10th to pre-order the book through those and yeah, get the cute little stickers in the book. The book is good too, uh, <laughs> but help out indies. That's, that's my big thing with that. And also pre-order books from authors you love. I just can't say that enough. It's really, it's really important. So anytime you see that coming up, I think, it it, yes. it means something. It really it means something to many people. Not just um, it's not a, it's not a small feat. So I just also want to make sure that I say that. So we have the dating playbook on August seventeenth. It's a fake relationship with great friendship and set in Austin. And I can't wait for everyone to read it. And then you have real, which is already out from Kennedy Ryan. I got to listen to that audiobook because every time I hear the clip on the last podcast I listened to, I was like, this Experience. is like a new ballgame. Right. Yeah. There is, there is singing. Yeah. There is singing on the audiobook. You did, did you do the singing? Girl, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> don't no. upset me. <laughs> no. Um, we, um, we brought in a singer here. I'm here in Atlanta and the studio that was like mixing it, we just – she is a singer I've worked with in the past and she just popped in the studio and Amazing. did the songs, but songs. Amazing. Songs. Yes. Yes. I'm very proud of the audiobook. There's three narrators and music. And I'm really, really, really proud of the audio for it. It's amazing. I just need to say one more thing. What's very exciting is if you had read Reel and you listened to the audiobook and you've maybe pre-ordered the dating playbook. Both of these authors have amazing backlist that you need to get on top of. And I know that is how I got very obsessed with Kennedy's books because I was reading all of her books when my friend to- like introduced me to you and I had no idea. Um, so that's really amazing because that's going to keep you busy all summer long. Um, and then with Sarah, yes. Boyfriend Project. Um, and also audiobook for for that one too, which is a really, really fun audiobook. I am... Um, I am less of an audiobook reader, but I honestly really, really liked um, the Boyfriend Project audio. I, I like a lot of our romance audios, and that surprised me more than anybody. I yeah, I'm I'm big on audio. That's really my main way of reading now. I've become audiobook. a big fan of it. Thank you so much for this wonderful conversation that 
is going to be like my top 10 life moments. Um, this has been so lovely. Kennedy, thank you. Farah, thank you. We're doing standing ovations over here because we're pretending this is like a, <laughs> uh, we're at the theater, but we're not. Um, thank you everyone for listening. Happy reading. Have a great summer. And big thanks and big hugs to everybody here. Thank you. Thank you guys for being here. Thank you, Estelle. Thank hey, you, This Sarah, was so, so much, much fun. Thank you so much for doing so it. So much fun. Now for a special audiobook excerpt from Kennedy Ryan's latest release, Real. Chapter 3. Canon. I prefer film. I like months to mold a story into my preferred shape, to manipulate with light, or reconstruct with editing. I like takes. A few chances for my actors to find their best. I like time. Theater is immediate. With a movie... I'm bringing something to life. With theater, it's breathing on me. It's already alive. I know it takes months, sometimes years, bringing a work to the Broadway stage, so I respect the process and appreciate its rigors. But the experience is very different from film. And I prefer film. But from the moment she steps on stage, this understudy, something kindles inside of me. At first, it's merely a flicker of recognition. Not that I know her or have seen her before. I recognize this feeling of finding something unexpected and exceptional. Discovery. After a while, beauty blurs. In my business, you've seen one pretty face. So, for me... A well-constructed face doesn't necessarily hold my attention the way it did when I was younger. Surgeons can construct a great face. Beauty can be bought. This, what she has, what she does, is not about beauty. She's attractive, I guess. Even under the thick layer of stage makeup and the wig and the costume, there's an arresting quality to her. I mentally strip every performer when I meet them. Remove the makeup, costume, whatever identity they've assumed, to examine what lies beneath. The bones under the skin. The soul under the flesh. It's a knee-jerk response after years of casting for movies. I automatically disassemble them into their smallest parts. Even when I'm not working with an actor, I assess them to see what's there for me to use. There's so much here. If she were a room, all the windows and doors would be flung open. There is an unboundedness to her, even as she exhibits the restraint of craft. She's obviously well-trained and disciplined, but her spirit gallops like a horse given its head, lengthening the reins until it runs wild. Her face tells the story before she delivers one line. She's badularescent. The glow of a stone that comes from beneath the surface, like all the brightest parts of her aren't available to the naked eye. And on stage, she brings it out for the audience to see. For much of the play, she interacts with other characters, but near the middle, 
The stage clears until she stands alone in the spotlight. The stage is vast, and she seems so small it could easily swallow her, but it doesn't. She commands the space, and when she reaches the pivotal monologue, anyone else on stage would only be in her way. Splendor. There's splendor in our kisses, and awe in every breath when you touch me just like that, just like that right there. The world stops beneath your fingers. I shiver. I crumble. Your caress leaves me boneless, weightless, one glance from you. The sun stands still in my chest, high noon, high rise, high on you. My field of poppies, my field of dreams, my splendor in the grass. Splendor, 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 chase me, catch me, wrap me in your fantasies, feed me from the storehouse of your love. Let's sustain each other. Let's enjoy each other. Let's find forever. Each and every eternity. I'll trade my heart for yours. And we will be splendor. You and me. She and I are not alone in the theater. I know hundreds of people around me hear her words too, but somehow... It feels like she delivers the words to me, to only me. I wonder if everyone listening feels that way too. That's the alchemy of this actress. She reaches you. With an audience this large, she makes it personal. In a story that is pretend, she makes it feel true. And in a moment when I wasn't looking, I've found exactly what I was looking for. Thanks for listening to the final episode of the Hollywood Renaissance limited podcast series with Kennedy Ryan featuring Farrah Roshan and Estelle Halleck. Audiobook excerpt narrated by Jacoby Diem. The Hollywood Renaissance podcast is produced by Keisha Menefee and Olivia Stibbe. For more info on the books mentioned in today's episodes or to follow Kennedy Ryan and our guests, please take a look at the show notes and follow their Instagram accounts. You can find Farah at Farah Roshan, Estelle at That's Ostel, and Kennedy Ryan at Kennedy Ryan 1. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you back here next season. <laughs>